here, one of the elders here. Happy Father's Day to all the dads, and happy Father. Thank you, thank you, Colin. So, um, in fact, I, I actually called my dad uh, on Father in the states. Father's Day is in June, so I called my dad and I said, "Oh, happy Father's Day!" But it's not Father's Day here, but it's Father's Day there. But anyway, I can call him again. I should probably call him again today and say, "Happy Father's Day," and he'll be like, "What?" So, <laughs> anyway, happy Father's Day again. Um, no longer a child, but I have children of my own. When, when I was a young child, um, and, and my mother would take us kids to the GP or, or some place where we had to wait a while, she would, so that we didn't act feral, she would do this little things with her fingers, right? She'd say, okay, this is before iPads. Okay, so she goes, here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, and what? And see all see all the people. That's right. And then she'd repeat it again and again. But really, in all seriousness, what is the church? What what is the nature of the church? What are the characteristics which constitute a church or signify it as a church? What is the nature of the church? And, and can I ask, if you feel comfortable with this, um, what, I'm just going to ask you, and you get some, not all of you have to respond at once, but what is the church? Can I just ask you, can you just throw out some, shout out some, some answers? Okay, the people, anything else? That's right, body of Christ, yep. The gathering place, the people, the body of Christ, those good images, metaphors, that's all good things. Anything else? What is the church? Sorry? The flock, yep, another good metaphor. Very good. The invisible people of God. Yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about that today as well. This idea of the universal church versus the local church. So, thanks for sharing. Um, I ask that because over the next four weeks, Dan and I are going to be attempting to answer that question. What is the church? And honestly, this is a crucial question for us to ask and to think about. And here's why. Jesus founded the church. He purchased it with his own blood. He actually identifies himself with the church and cherishes it. It is his church. It is his body. Do you believe that? Then if that is the case, do you think that we're sort of left to our own reason or cleverness or whatever makes sense to us when it comes to who we are as a church or, or what we believe or when, where, or how often we meet. It's as if the Lord says, hey, guys, gals, you got this, right? I mean, woe to me. I mean, I know I died for the church. I know it's my body, but, but woe to me if I want to fringe upon how you want church to be. Because that's, you know, I, I just, I got to step back here. And if you want church to look a certain way, to smell a certain way, it's cool with you, it's cool with me, man. Could it be 
that perhaps the Lord of the church who died for the church actually is concerned how, how, who we are, what we believe, how, op, how we operate, how, where, and when we meet? It, 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 sometimes, though, I know I'm being cheeky about that, but that's sometimes in a Western society how we operate, isn't it? We, we operate as if the Lord has little or nothing to say on how we as Christians should organize ourselves as the local church. So again, what is the church? It's a question for us to answer that has massive implications. Everybody has a view of the church, by the way. People that aren't here in church today have a view of the church. They think it's all smells and bells. It's an archaic practice of their grandma or whatever. Or those are all the judgmental people that are against who we are as a tolerant society here in Australia. There's, everyone's got a view of the church. Even people that have the lowest sort of idea of uh, liturgy and the, you know, the loosey-goosey church is what I want to make it. They still have a view of the church. Everybody has a view of the church. Everyone has opinions about who, who we should be, what, how we should do, what should we sing or not sing, or if there should be a cross or not a cross, or what kind of building it should be in. Everybody's got a view on that. Even if you're indifferent of it, you still have a view to it because your indifference, your apathy is actually still just an opinion. You just don't care. Okay, so everyone has a view of the church. Everyone, yes, that question, what is, that, what is the church? People have an opinion on that. Now, now, as I take a stab at answering that question, what is the church? No doubt some of you are going to have some questions. And listen, that's a good thing. And, and we want to explore those questions together. So can I encourage you? As I teach today and over the next several weeks, write your question down. If there's some burning question that you have, write it down and actually give it to Rob Wright after service and the next week, yeah, that's right, and he'll answer it for you. Um, and we'll try to answer it in service next week. So maybe before the sermon or maybe after the sermon or whatever, we'll try to answer those questions that you have. I want to foster good questions and thinking during this time. It's not just, well, I'm just going to listen to whatever that guy says. Or if I disagree with that guy, I'm just not going to say anything, at least not to his face. I'm going to wait till I get in a small group and then I'll share what I have to say about it. No, 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 no. That's useless. That's not helpful. So write your question down, give it to Rob, and we'll discuss it. And we'll try to, and, and maybe you'll say, oh, you, that's not really what I was getting at. That's fine. Here, whoever you are, come talk to me. Come talk to one of the elders here. And we want to discuss what is the church. It's crucial. It's massively important. John Stott once said this, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Friends, when we think about what the church is and how precious it is to God, that should cause us to step back and ask ourselves if we too have a high premium on the church. And if our view of the church is consistent with the Bible's view of the church. All right, so what I want to do with our time together this morning is to try to dig at the root. This is sort of foundational stuff today as we begin this four-week series. All I want to do is just get at what the nature of the church is as the people of God. So the church constitutes a group or a body of people. Namely, 
the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God. It's that simple. That, that's, that's all we're going today. So basically the nature of the church. Next week, we'll, we'll begin to just kind of picture each week we're going to dive a little deeper. But now we're just sort of laying it at the very top bit and saying, okay, who are the people of God? The people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. What is sort of the nature of the church? That said, why don't we look to the Lord in prayer before we dive into this. Father, thank you for your word again. We know that your word is living and active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So Lord, would you work by your spirit now, reshape our thinking. Lord, there's going to be so many ways as sinners that we are off base in our understanding of our selfish motives and reasons of what we would like your church to be. So help us to be teachable, moldable this morning. And, and may we begin to really think clearly about what your church is. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, when I say the people of God in the Old Testament, some of you are thinking, yeah, okay, but wait a minute. There, church isn't in the Old Testament, is it? I mean, I thought that was like a New Testament thing. I mean, church is in the Old Testament. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Maybe some of you weren't thinking that at all until I mentioned it. Now you're kind of half waking up saying, well, maybe, what's he saying? But whatever. Church is not in the Old Testament, is it? No. Well, the word church isn't there, at least not in Hebrew. The word church isn't there. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. New Testament was written in Greek. So we don't have the word church in the Old Testament, per se. But in the Old Testament, there is a covenant people of God, right? The, the nation of Israel. They're, they're God's people. And, and you could argue that really the story of the church begins with Israel. There are a dozen terms the Lord has for them. Israel's God's son, his spouse, the apple of his eye, his vine, his flock, and so on. The point is, like the church, this nation was to be distinct from all other people, groups, or nations. They belonged to God. He had redeemed, redeemed them. They were a corporate body, a collection of God's people. Now, when I used to live in Hawaii, people in Hawaii tend to be, um, and, and I would say be, uh, because Hawaii is a Polynesian culture, so Hawaiians, Tongans, Samoans, Pacific Islanders, and there's a huge population of an Asian culture there. And both of those cultures combined made, it, made the culture at large very communal. Okay, what's mine is yours and yours is mine sort of thing. And, and because it was a communal, uh, I guess, uh, culture, whatever the term you want to use, it was, it was interesting to see the children there. Now, they're sinners just like they are here in Australia or anywhere else, but what was interesting about children I'd always try to bond with them by pretending I was going to eat their chocolate or their lolly, right? I just, I don't know why I think that's bonding, but you know, ah, you know, you're pretending you're going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eat that, the weird uncle or pastor or whatever, right? But here's what's fascinating. Every single time that I did that and I was at a barbecue or at a park or a baptism, they never recoiled their hand. Never. Never once. They always, oh, yeah, did you, did you want my lolly? Where, yeah, right. An Anglo-Aussie kid? Mine! <laughs> Same with an Anglo-American kid. Right? 
Now, they're, both kids are just, a, they're both sinners, by the way. Let's not let be weird here and make this a rip on white people Sunday. There's enough of that in the liberal media, thank you. Okay, but both are sinners. Both are sinners, but what one kid says, he grows up in a communal fashion, a communal sense. Some of you that are Asians are actually nodding your head like, I get it, okay? We need more Asians in this church, by the way. So you're like, I, I, I get that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, was, I, I, w- I would have done that, even if your heart wasn't there, by the way. You just would have been trained, fashioned, socialized into that. You're, you might have been like, oh, you know, but you still would have, the kid still would have done it. And I didn't eat his chocolate or his lolly, but. Now, I say that, the reason, the reason I bring that to your attention, don't miss, you'll totally miss, you know what I'm worried? I said this April last night, I'm, you're totally gonna miss, you're gonna miss everything of what I'm saying right now if you're gonna go, oh yeah, kids here aren't like that anymore. Kids don't, you're, you're just, you're totally missing the, illust- it's just to illustrate a point. And here's the point, Okay. Today in a Western world, we are, we are so accustomed to be thought of and respected as individuals, right? Each individual has freedom on, on what they say, do, where they work, whom they marry, where they go on holiday, how long they go on holiday. But in Old Testament times, your identity as the nation of Israel wasn't so much individual as much as it was wrapped up with the group or the tribe from which you came. And now the reason I say all that is as we turn each page in our Old Testament, I think we get a sneak peek that yes, God saves individuals, but they're incorporated into a larger community. It would be inconceivable for any Old Testament saint to think of themselves as independent or self-governing. In fact, I'd encourage you, As you read through the Bible in our Bible reading plan in the Old Testament, try to note how often God glorifies his name through groups of people that he chose and made his own. Mark Dever puts it this way, pastor in Washington, D.C. in the States. He says, God's eternal plan has always been to display his glory, not just through individuals, but through a corporate body. In creation, God created not one person, but two, and two who have the ability to reproduce more. In the flood, God saved not one person, but several families. In Genesis 12, God called Abram and promised that Abram's descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. In Exodus, God dealt not only with Moses, but with the nation of Israel. 12 tribes comprised of hundreds of thousands of people yet bearing one corporate identity. He gave laws and ceremonies that should be worked out not only in the lives of individuals, but also in the life of the whole people. You see, the way in which the Old Testament people of God experienced their faith was largely communal. How vastly different is that when you think about how many Christians view their faith today. True confession, when I first became a Christian, the local church was an afterthought at best. Yeah, you know, sure, I was self-consciously spiritual, 
with a Christian identity, but I was mainly committed to what I wanted to do for God, how I believed he was leading me in my own personal journey. What's God's will for my life? What does the Lord want me to do? How is God going to use me? I've got my Bible. I've got God. I'm good to go. And yeah, I might go to church on Sundays if I like the pastor, if the music's good. But you know what? Hey, at the end of the day, I'm on mission for Jesus. And that's all that matters. That's the most important thing. That's how many people in the West view their walk with God. The church is an afterthought. It's disconnected. That's how I viewed the local church. I had a very low premium on the local church. And look, if I didn't like the church that I was going to or I got my nose out of joint, I'd just go to the next one. Right? Besides the worship's there better anyways. More comfortable chairs. But I don't really need these people. It's interesting, 48 times in the New Testament, the word in Greek is alelon. I'm going to teach you it. Ready? If you don't have one another, you're alelon. That's, anyway. Get it? 48 times in the New Testament, one another is used. Okay? There's a one anotherness about our faith, friends, that I think lacks very much in the local church today as we see it, as we look left, right, and center. I had this view, though, true confession, that, like I said, the church, the local church, was an afterthought. But all that came crashing down when I began to study exactly who the people of God are, and particularly what the church is. All right, now, some of you at this point, I'm about to say something, and you're thinking it, so I'm going to say it, or you're not thinking it, and once I mention it, you will start to think it. That's nice for the Old Testament people of God, but come on, Rob. We don't live in that time. We're in the New Testament, and it's about a personal relationship with Jesus. That's about a personal relationship with Jesus. All right, which now leads us to our second point. So the Old Testament people of God, the New Testament people of God, or people of God in the New Testament. Now, there are some undeniable differences. So, yes, I'm, I'm willing to acknowledge that. There is discontinuity, if you want to use that term. There is a difference. There are some differences, undeniably, between the people of God of the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Let me just list a few. The people of God in the Old Testament are ethnically distinct, right? The nation of Israel, where the church is made up of every tongue, tribe, and nation. We're not ethnically distinct. The, the, uh, distinct. We're diverse. We're mixed. Uh, God's people in the Old Testament are given geographical land. But God's people in the New Testament inherit the earth. God's people in the Old Testament live under their own government. God's people in the New Testament live within various countries and cultures over space and time that have different laws that they have to obey and practice. In the Old Testament, promises are made in the New Testament, promises are kept so Jesus, because Jesus fulfills them through his life, his death, his resurrection. The Old Testament is the, the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is the New Covenant. So, so there are differences, 
But when it comes to the people of God being a corporate, visible body, they're actually quite similar. Let me show you what I mean. Ralph read this passage for us in Ephesians 2. If you have your Bible there, Ephesians 2, Paul's just been explaining this glorious truth that though people are born dead in trespasses and sins, because of the work of Christ, they can be new creatures. They can now, uh, and, and in fact, if you didn't, weren't here a few weeks ago, Rob Wright preached on the first 10 verses, which he did a fantastic job. You can go back and listen to it. So in verse 11, coming off of that argument, it's a therefore. And by the way, here's a hermeneutical tip for you. Every time you see hermeneutics, it's a Bible interpretation. Every time you see the word therefore, you have to ask yourself, what's it there for? Okay? You don't start a sentence that way, do you? Therefore, therefore what? So it's just, it's a flow of thought. All right? So verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. Let me just stop there for a second. He's referring to, okay, you've got the church. And remember, there's a distinction between the people of God in the Old Testament marked by circumcision, right? That's like going all the way back to Abraham. How are the people of God distinguished? Well, they're distinguished physically by circumcision. So he's, he's saying, you Gentiles... Those of you that are not Jews, which unless there's someone Jewish in here, that's like all of us in this room. All of you people, myself included, you weren't part of that group. So that's, that's what he's saying. But look, look at verse 12. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated um, from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might, I love this, he might, create in himself one new man. That's beautiful. Two things I want to hang, have you hang your hat on though. And this is where I wish that God would sort of put a red light above your head because this is, this is passage is really thick and it's good, but I wish there'd be like, bink, and uh-oh, I better reel it in. I don't know if I'm starting to, you're drifting. Like, I don't know if like, oh, they're gone. They're gone. And I, I wish God would be like, ding, ding, ding. And there'd be like little lights above your heads. Because then I can say, oh, okay, pause. Like, and, and sometimes I'll go, of it, I'll go over my sermon on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings with April. And she says, you just need to read slower. Talk slower. Stop. You know, they're not, we haven't been with you in the text all week. So just relax. So you can thank April if I have, makes sense. Okay. But I just wish there'd be little lights at this point. Like, ding, 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 ding. I could say, oh, okay, I got to reel it in. Wyoming, so I know you guys would probably raise your hand here, but don't do that. You're distracting. So there are, there are two ideas that I want you to hang your hat on here, okay? Two ideas. If you want to run them down, it might be helpful. The first is this idea, and David, 
highlighted this earlier when I asked what is the church, this idea of the universal church. Universal church. And second is this idea of the local church. The universal church and the local church. Now, when referencing the church, there is a universal sense that the moment someone is born again, they're placed into union with Christ, right? As we see here. But this largely applies to the variety of ethnicities who share a common faith. Look at verse 15 again. See what he says in verse 15? He says, by abolishing the law of, of commandments, expressing ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body. See, that's a universal church. See that there? One big Catholic church, as it were, meaning just Orthodox, not the Roman Catholic church. Okay, one big, the light, any lights going on? Okay, it looks, looks good. The Lord hasn't shown me any lights yet. Good. Okay, good, good, good. I don't really see the lights. I'm not that weird. So one new man, one body through the cross. So, so you have the universal church, say from the time, okay, think of the apostles, right? Think of Pentecost. They're sharing the gospel. Peter shares the gospel and he, he, it says that people are cut to the heart in Acts. If you read that, what must we do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, right? And they're baptized. And then you see the book of Acts, the church growing, and you see the gospel moving to all different geographical locations. But then we're sort of left with the book of Acts where Paul's still alive, he's going to go trial to Rome. That's not that much time. You have, since then, 2,000 years of history. Ge different geographical locations. That universal church all fits under that heading. So there are brothers and sisters of ours who we haven't met because they lived, say, 300 years ago. Never met. Those that are placed their faith in Christ, God has saved them, we'll meet them in heaven. We are the universal church. Make sense? So across space and time, there's a universal church. All right, now... Again, picking up where we left off in verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body, there's that universal aspect of it, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So, so there's able because of this, the fruit of this, what Paul's saying is Jews and Gentiles are actually able. There's not a distinguished, and it depends where, you, where you're, uh, you might even know this word. It depends if you are a dispensationalist at this point, or if you're, nah, it doesn't matter, you don't even know what that term is. You're not, there's clear that you're not going to see a distinction, that there's actually going to be oneness, that the people of God are actually the restored Israel of God, right? That there is an, there's an one people here, one new man. Love that language. So that's what he's saying. Because of that, there's not like, okay, God's people, and there's God's people, and there's God's people, but there's one God's covenant people. Does that make sense? Um. You don't have God's covenant people over here who are his bride. God's not a polygamist. Do, are you following me? You don't, have, you don't have God's covenant people who are ethnically here and God's covenant people who are everyone else and then God's covenant, you don't have that. You have one bride of Christ. Make sense? 
Again, that's why we don't baptize infants here, by the way. You don't have two covenant peoples of God in the New Testament. So, Because when you baptize an infant, they're saying, what does this what happens here? Well, circumcision is being replaced. That's, that's why Presbyterians and Anglicans and others baptize infants because they're saying circumcision needs to be replaced. And how is it replaced? Well, the covenant people of God are the believers, like the children of believers. But, but that's actually like, we don't see that. You don't have two covenant peoples of God in the New Testament. You have one covenant people of God. Now, that said, there are some wonderful very fantastic, Christ-centered, biblical churches, EV Church, Gosford Pres that are fantastic that preach the gospel. But they, but they have a, a view of baptism that would be different. But they're fantastic and they're gospel-centered. Okay, so, so let's not get on our high horse with this. Like, we share a lot of, I, I share a lot of in common with those brothers, but that's why they're seeing, I'm just trying to, does, is that making sense? Is any lights going on or is there more confusion lights? Okay. One people, I hope what you're seeing here though, well, the point I'm trying to make is there are two things to hang your hat on. The universal church and the local church. But both have this idea there is continuity with the Old Testament people of God in that there's a sharedness, there's a oneness. Are you are still there kind of tracking? Okay, good. Now, now look, in verse 19, so then, you who are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members, look at this language, Jesus, of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. A lot there, but you're getting the oneness, aren't you? Do you understand that? There's a universal oneness, but there's a handful of verses in the New Testament. Here's, here's the key. There's a handful of verses in the New Testament which refer to the church in the abstract or universal sense, but often they point to the local church. When the Apostle Paul wrote letters to churches, they were addressed to an identified assembly that lived in a specific geographical location. I mean, that's just not my random opinion. In 1 Corinthians, in the city of Corinth, right? To the church of God that is in Corinth. In the city of Ephesus, to the saints who are in Ephesus. In the city of Thessalonica, to the church of the Thessalonians. You get the point, right? The overwhelming majority of references to the church are to a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and committed to each other. The overwhelming majority of references to the church are to a local, living, and loving collection of people who are committed to Christ and committed to each other. You see, friends, when the church comes together each day on the Lord's Day, each week, I should say, on the Lord's Day, it gathers not simply as an instructed or edified people, but as a ransomed and saved people. The church is the gospel made visible. The church is not invisible, and it is. 
there's a big fat universal sense in that there's people here that aren't here because they were dead. And there's people here because they're actually made visible in other local churches. Think universal church. But the universal church is displayed in the local church. The gospel is, so the gospel is a message, right? The gospel is a message. God reconciling sinners to himself. Okay? And, And you can hear the gospel proclaimed, but the way that you see that gospel, the gospel made visible, is in actually the local church. It would be like I, uh, I, they'd probably arrest me for this, but it'd be like if I went to Lake, I ran over to Lake Hawk Theater and I just started shouting out the gospel, right? If someone were to, well, they'd probably arrest me, but, but if someone were to show up and, and say, well, uh, wow, I've actually never thought that God created me, that, that I'm actually accountable to God because I've been created by God and what you're saying makes sense that I, I can be forgiven of my sins if I turn to Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. I actually want to respond now, turning from my sin. Boom, you're seeing someone converted. The gospel's now made, I can grab the person, right? The gospel is, and I know I'm really going to get arrested, but, but the gospel's made visible. Is that, is that making sense? And then he goes and tells his, his mates. And his mates come, and they get saved. And then his aunt comes, and she gets saved. Well, now, what, what are we going to do? We're just going to, you know, stand out here at Lake Hawk. Well, eventually there's going to be enough of us here where we've got we, we to find a place to meet. And, and we start meeting. And, and what, are the thing, what are some of the things that we do? Well, we want to celebrate this reality. We don't move on from the gospel, right? We continue to celebrate the gospel. So, and, and, and it says here that we're to believe and be baptized. Well, have you been baptized? I haven't yet. Okay, well, let's baptize you. And, and how are we supposed to commemorate and celebrate this reality of Jesus' death for us? Oh, well, the, this is his body that's broken for us. We should be doing this on a regular basis. This is his blood poured out for us. We need to celebrate those things and commemorate those things. You see how that's forming? Does that make sense? It's the gospel made visible. Let me, I want to close by this. I want to close by this. In John 17, the high priestly prayer it's called. Uh, Turn to John 17. Let me me just show you. It's It's literally just one verse. Jesus actually prays for us. He prays for his disciples. So in in the first bit here, um, like as in the first 19 verses, he's actually praying for his disciples. I encourage you to read this later, John 17. First 19 verses, he's, you know, I pray for them and my disciples and I don't lose one of them. It's all really good stuff. But then notice what he says. He looks beyond his disciples, as it were, and says, I do not ask for those, for these only, these meaning, you know, his disciples, but also for those who will believe. Who's that? That's us, or the people, I suppose you could say, contextually, it'd be like, as in like, you know, 10 years down the track, but we get that sort of message reverberates all the way through history, and we we're able to embrace the gospel, right? So who will believe in me through what? Their word, their message. Do you see, does that making sense? That the gospel is made, there's a, there's a message, okay? Here's the gospel. Like I said, think the Laycock thing. Gospel now is made visible as those who embrace it by faith. And 
the church, the local church friend, is the gospel made visible. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be unpacking more of what that means. So hopefully I'll leave, I'll leave you coming back for more or you've had enough. It's all right, you've got six days. <laughs> but Dan, next week, is going to be talking, we're going to just keep diving a little bit deeper on, on this idea, okay? Because that, that leaves a whole lot of, a lot of questions, right? I mean, like, okay, yeah, the church's gospel made visible. There's, there's a universal church that's true, but there's a, there's a local church. So then, okay, well, what is, in order for it to be a legitimate church then, can it just believe whatever the heck it wants? How can it meet whenever the heck it wants? I probably shouldn't say that. It probably sounds too mean. Can it just mean, what, what can it mean? Can it just meet whenever it wants? Can it, can it baptize who it wants to baptize? Can it, who leads the church anyway? How do you make decisions? See, it's, hopefully now it's creating some questions in your mind. And that's a good thing. So we'll close on that and we'll pray. All right. Lord, we thank you again for your word. Thank you that, Lord Jesus, you love the church. You bought the church with your own blood shed on the cross for us. That you died for specific people, a specific bride of Lord, we, we we thank you that you have caused us to believe through the message of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that we as we gather that this that that's an expression. And as we and as we take up the part the, the elements now, Lord, of, of the bread remembering your body and the blood and the and the and the Jews remembering your blood. We thank you that you're here, you're present in a special way with us now. So Lord, would you continue to mark off those who are your own? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.